With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Time for. Hello, listeners. I hope this finds you well and in fine fettle. This week, I have a little something special for you later in the episode. I'm going to share with you a chat that I had with the executive producer of the possible Underwood and Flinch television series. Now, some of you may recall that I played you another chat I had with him before. Uh, I think it might have been in the Underwood and Flinch After Hours podcast that I was doing with my wife Pauline during the break between Underwood and Flinch seasons three and four. In that first chat, which was, I think, recorded in like June of last year, the producer basically confirmed that the show was happening and that I wasn't having you all on when I said that it was in the early stages of pre-production, uh, a period sometimes called development hell, because it takes such a long time and such a lot of work to get all the various components of the show sorted out for its eventual, hopefully, production. He also confirmed that we had stars and significant companies involved, and he speculated about when we might see the show on TV. But in today's episode, after the Underwood and Finch story section, I'm going to play you a more recent chat that I had with him in which he updates us on how things were going back when we recorded the call in October of last year. So stay tuned after the Underwood and Finch story section to hear that and to get some insight on not just the possible Underwood and Flinch television series, but also to maybe learn a few things about how this sort of thing happens and the difference in the roles of producers and executive producers. Oh. Yes, I, I thought you'd like that. But anyway, that's all to come later. Now it's time for the reason you're actually here, the next exciting instalment of Underwood and Flinch Underground. I'll now hand you over to me from the original 2016 Patreon intro to this chapter to give you a brief recap on where we are. This episode picks up from the previous episode, basically, in which David found himself to be a prisoner uh, of the sect in the sect house in London for his own good. Of course, you know, they're just protecting him and making sure no harm comes to him. But, uh, you know, he's not going anywhere. Uh, and and that's basically where we pick up. Uh, Elizabeth Daventry has, you know, had her chat with him and gone. And uh, we start this episode with David alone uh, and reading the newspapers.
Underwood and Flinch, Season 4, Underground, written and performed for podcast by Mike Bennett. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 7. Ronnie Bishop. The name was one of many things in the original London vampire news piece that David had underlined in the previous evening's London Courier, but it was only the name of the journalist that he was now writing on his forearm. He checked again to ensure that Tully and Kendall weren't watching him. They continued to chat quietly in the doorway, neither of them looking in his direction. David turned the pages to the courier's editorial details and found the contact number for anyone who wanted to report a story. He scribbled the number on his arm, under Bishop's name, and with a final glance at Tully and Kendall, tugged down his sleeve and rebuttoned his cuff. He then sat back in his seat at the table in the bay window and lit a fresh cigarette from the one he'd been smoking. He didn't particularly want to chain smoke, but Kendall wouldn't allow him to have a lighter, claiming it was a potential weapon. David sighed a stream of smoke and looked out of the window into the gathering dusk. He'd read the London vampire coverage in all the newspapers Elizabeth Daventry had given him. She'd been right in saying that they all basically rehashed Ronnie Bishop's original piece. Clearly, Bishop was the man the sect needed to talk to, but Elizabeth hadn't mentioned him once. Maybe that penny hadn't dropped with her. He could have pointed it out, but after she had informed him he was essentially being held a prisoner of the sect, he'd seen no reason to cooperate with her or Daventry and West any further. She'd asked him more questions, focusing almost exclusively on the idea that someone from La Fantasia could have been turned into a vampire, and he'd answered though without expanding in any way on what he'd already told them, and definitely not saying a word about his fears concerning Damo. Damo, the London vampire. It was almost too awful to contemplate, but it was the only thing that made sense. That his friend had become infected by Lydia's bite and by ingesting Underwood's blood was highly probable, if that were the case, he would have had a motive for killing Lisa, namely revenge upon David, because, arguably, it should have been David and not Damo who had ended up in Lydia's fateful embrace. At La Fantasia, Damo had drawn Lydia's attack away from David and inadvertently onto himself. That wasn't David's fault, but Damo, if he were now a vampire, may not see it so reasonably. David had imagined him waking up transformed, realising all that he'd lost, and then deciding who was to blame for it. Lydia would obviously be the first person, but once he'd learned that she was dead, he could then have turned to David as the next in line. It wouldn't have taken long for him to discover that David was in jail, so who did that leave for him to exact his revenge upon except David's loved ones? And that would have meant Lisa. News of Lisa's death would have reached David in prison. He imagined that Damo would have left two bite marks on the neck, 
just so there could be no doubt as to how she had died. Perhaps he would even have left a note addressed to David as a means of revealing himself. The more David thought about it, the more layered and complex the scenario became in his mind. He'd imagined various possibilities for the note, sometimes a fake suicide note from Lisa with a veiled reference to Damo, sometimes a direct message from him, like the one he was composing in his mind now. She was sweet, just like you said when we were on the road to Malaga. On the road to Malaga. That was when he had told Damo about her. It had been a long drive, and once they'd gone through all the possible strategies of the fight that lay before them at La Fantasia, they'd started talking about other things, including family and girlfriends. David had told him about his life with Lisa, where they lived, how things had been between them before John had called him to Spain, and how he still hoped that he could get back to some kind of normal relationship with her once, if he got out of Spain in one piece. He hadn't given him their actual address, but all Damo would have had to do to find it would have been to go out to Casa Underwood and look for it. Once he had it, he could then have gone to England to find her. David imagined him calling at the door, fixing her eyes with his and smiling. Lisa, I'm a friend of David's. She would then have taken him up to the flat, and here he found he couldn't, wouldn't imagine. Instead, he moved forward in his imagination to the part where Damo got Lisa to phone him. Better than a note, an actual message on his telephone. David, this is Lisa. Your Irish friend sends his regards. But David hadn't answered. Damo wouldn't have expected that, so then he'd changed his plan. He'd decided to use Lisa as bait to infect her as he had been infected and leave her as a trap to infect David in turn. And the rest, the rest was history. David went to take a drag on his cigarette and its ash tumbled onto his shirt. He saw his hand was trembling, not with fear, but with anger. He put the cigarette between his lips and clenched his fist, willing himself to be calm, rational, not to let emotion, based on what was only a theory, overwhelm him. He opened his hand, extending the fingers, and was relieved to see it was once again steady. He didn't like his theory, but it added up better than anything else. The only question was... While someone could certainly have done the things that he'd imagined Damo had done, could Damo actually have done them? Would he have had it in him to be such an inhuman bastard? But then inhuman was the key word, wasn't it? The man he had known was dead, and whatever was walking around in Damo's skin was now literally inhuman. He was a vampire. He'd killed Lisa and now he was very likely hunting the streets of London for David. And if he found him here, in this house, opposite Hyde Park, what then? David turned back to look at Tully and Candle. Both of them, he now knew, were armed with tasers and possibly something more lethal, though Elizabeth seemed to think that tasers would be adequate to the task. She'd obviously never seen a man turn to mist before. 
If Damo had learned that particular trick, a taser was going to be as much good as a fly swatter. But just for the sake of argument, supposing they did bring him down, what then? The sect theory was that he could be reined in and made to live according to the rules of their so-called code. But was that justice for Lisa, he thought? Hardly. Damo should be made to pay. He should be... He wanted to say destroyed, but he couldn't bring himself to. Damo was, had been, his friend. While it wasn't David's fault that Damo had become a vampire, it had happened as a direct result of Damo saving David's life. David owed him, and just sitting here while all this shit was happening out there was unbearable to him. He had to get out there and find Damo, track him down and get to the truth, and not with the likes of Tully and Kendall waving tasers in his face either. He needed to speak to him alone. Right now, Damo was experiencing a change that no one other than Underwood could have understood. It was fair to say that he was probably experiencing a kind of temporary insanity. If that were true, then he could almost forgive Lisa's murder and try to move on and to help him. He could try to convince Damo to come in to Daventry and West and accept their help in adapting to his new way of life. But if he had become a monster, unreasonable and unrepentant, then he would do what had to be done. He would kill Damo. Or Damo would kill him. He reached across the table for the bottle of vodka he'd managed to convince Tully to furnish him with. He'd played up his alcoholic credentials, saying that he'd be climbing the walls without it. Kendall had been reluctant, but Tully was apparently the ranking man and had had the final say. David twisted the cap and broke the seal, then poured a measure into his glass. He added a splash of soda, then raised the glass before him. Caesarra, sera, Damo, he said under his breath. Whatever will be, will be. Anyone eavesdropping on David, Tully and Kendall that evening could be excused for thinking the three men were the greatest of chums. They were watching television, where a repeat episode of Only Fools and Horses had them all laughing together like a happy family. Tully and Kendall seemed to take their cue to laugh straight from the canned laughter track that erupted from the TV every few moments. David laughed along with them, though often lagging behind by a few seconds, as if it took longer for the joke to click with his vodka-soaked brain. Or, at least that was the impression he wanted to convey. If David knew anything, it was how to appear drunk. He sat in an armchair near the fireplace, glancing frequently from the corner of his eye to check on Tully, who sat on the couch, and Kendall, who stood leaning against the wall by the door. On the screen, Delboy sent another zinging put-down at Rodney. Tully laughed on cue and turned to Kendall to repeat the line with gusto. You plonker, Rodney! Kendall laughed and David shifted in his seat, seemingly to laugh along with them, but actually to spill another glass of vodka down between the arm of his chair and the seat cushion. 
Though the bottle was roughly two-thirds empty, David had only drunk a couple of glasses of it. Most of its contents were either down the side of the seat cushion or soaked into the carpet between David's chair and the wall. What a plonger! <laughs> David slurred happily as he leaned forward to take up the bottle from the coffee table. Tally saw this, and his smile faded to a look of concern. Uh, don't you think that maybe you've had enough, Mr Flinch? How can I have had enough? said David. There's still some in the bottle, isn't there? Enough is when it's empty, Tally. I don't know, sir. I'm told you've been off it for a while. You mightn't be able to handle it like you used to. Oh, right, they told you that then, did they? Personal shit's all right, but useful shit, like where the fuck my trainers are, that's top secret. Come on, mate, tell us where they are. I ain't going nowhere, am I? I think you should go to bed, Mr Flinch, said Kendall. You've had an awful one night, sir. Bollocks to that, said David. It's only just past seven o'clock. What am I, a baby? You're pissed is what you are, sir, said Kendall. He looked at Tully. I knew we shouldn't have let him have that bottle. Look at him. He's all right, said Tully. Better that than have him pacing up and down asking bleeding questions all the time. That was driving me mad. Sorry, Tally, said David, spilling himself another glass of vodka. I didn't mean to, but I was worried, you know. Yeah, I know, sir. But Kendall's right. You should be calling it a night. We don't want you to be so fucked you can't get up in the morning. Why? What's happening in the morning? Miss Daventry coming round with the papers, is she? I've no idea, sir, but it's nice to be able to greet her if she does, isn't it? You should have thought of that before you gave him the sauce, said Kendall. Well, how was I to know he's going to drink the whole fucking bottle, said Tully. He's an alky, isn't he? That's what they do. That's what we do, said David with a grin. Cheers. He drank the contents of his glass down in one. OK, that's it, said Tully. Time for bed, sir. He got up and beckoned for David to come to him. Come on, David pouted, but he could see that both Tully and Kendall were determined. He didn't want Tully coming over and seeing the damp patch down the side of his cushion, so he got up. Okay, but only because I'm tired. Don't think I'm doing this because you want me to... He staggered, almost falling back down before righting himself by catching the arm of the chair. He grinned and straightened up. Almost. Tully again beckoned. Come on, sir, I'll help you up. I don't need help, said David, walking round the sofa away from Tully. I can manage fine on my own. Yeah, and end up sleeping in the broom cupboard, said Kendall, stepping into the doorway to block David's exit. Do you want to do it or shall I? said Tully. You're all right, said Kendall. I'll do it. Then you come up and relieve me at about ten, yeah? Nice one, Merv, said Tully. Good night, Mr Flinch. Good night, Tally, said David. Are you coming to tap me in, Merv? No, sir, but I'm going to watch over you while you sleep. Ah, like a guardian angel. Merv the guardian angel. Can I call you Merv, Merv? I prefer Kendall, sir. OK, Merv, said David, as Kendall placed a hand at his back to steer him out of the room. Whatever you say. Where's my room? Just up the stairs, sir. I need to pee. That's all right, you've got your own bathroom, remember? Oh, yeah. Are you going to come to the bathroom with me? 
No, sir, you can do that on your own, but I'd appreciate it if you left the door open just in case you fall and need help. What if I want to shit? I ain't shitting with the door open, Merv. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, sir. They got to the stairs. David had planned it as the ideal opportunity to get Kendall closer to him. He went to take a step, missed his footing and fell against the banister. Kendall caught him, putting his arm around David's back and lifting him from under the shoulder. Easy does it, sir. Let me lead. We going dancing, Merv? No, sir. Come on, one step at a time. David hung on to Kendall and started to climb the stairs. You know, you're all right, Merv, he said, giving Kendall's shoulder a squeeze. I gotta say, I wasn't too pleased about being banged up here, but as jailers go, you and old Tully, you're all right. Thank you, sir, said Kendall, turning slightly from David's sour breath. Glad to hear it. By the time they reached the top floor where David's room was located, David had affected a convincingly dozy demeanour, as if the concentration required to navigate the flights of stairs had sapped his last reserves of strength. His head lolled forwards, and he had all but stopped speaking. Kendall was supporting most of his weight as he led them down the hall. Nearly there, Mr Flidge, just a little further. I know, done it, Merv said David, his voice heavily slurred. "'Done what, sir?' said Kendall as they came to the bedroom door. He opened it and turned on the light. "'Who killed Lisa? My girlfriend?' Kendall, whose attention to his burdens, drunken ramblings had hitherto just been professional courtesy, now realised that David was on the verge of telling him exactly what the partners wanted to know. He remained nonchalant, not wanting to wake David from his drunken willingness to confide. All right, sir. Uh, who was that then? Insubah. Sack. David slurred. Who? asked Kendall, leaning his ear closer. I didn't. David suddenly stood upright, catching Kendall completely off guard. His right arm, which had been hanging onto Kendall's shoulder, was suddenly around his throat, and his left arm clamped behind his head, locking the man into a rear naked chokehold. Kendall couldn't speak, couldn't breathe. He grabbed at David's arm, but couldn't find purchase. Easy, Merv, said David. Just let it happen, mate. You're all right. I was an army medic. I know what I'm doing. Kendall managed a last ineffectual slap against David's arm before his body went limp and David gathered him up to lay him on the bed. He then began a search of Kendall's body. The first thing he did was take the taser from the shoulder holster under Kendall's arm. He tossed it to the end of the bed in between Kendall's feet, then frisked the rest of him. In his inside jacket pocket, he found a small, narrow, plastic box that he recognised as a syringe kit. He opened it to see a hypodermic syringe and a small bottle of clear fluid. He read the label on the bottle. The drug was called Ultiva, which David knew was the trade name for the analgesic Remifantanal. Either Kendall was a recreational drug fiend, or this was a knockout shot intended to be used on him in case he ever needed to be subdued. David quickly filled the syringe with a safe but potent dose, enough to keep Kendall out for at least 30 minutes, and injected it directly into a vein in the man's arm. There you go, Merv, he said with a smile. Pleasant dreams. Then he went through the rest of his pockets. He found a wallet, keys, 
mobile phone and the lighter Kendall had refused to give him for security reasons. Quite right too, said David as he pocketed it, along with the phone and all the cash in the wallet, which came to sixty pounds. Then he eased Kendall out of his jacket and unbuckled his shoulder holster. Next he took off his own jacket. Kendall was roughly the same size and build as him, so he only needed to make a few minor adjustments to the shoulder holster before putting it on and settling it into place. He holstered the taser, put his jacket back on, then went into the bathroom to check in the mirror that the weapon was adequately concealed. Then he went back to the bedroom door. He opened it a crack and looked out. On seeing no one, he stepped out and closed the door behind him. He listened. From far away came the sound of canned laughter, followed by Tully's. David let out the breath he'd been holding and started down the stairs. He trod lightly, the plush carpet absorbing the sound of his footfalls till he got to the ground floor where he paused to look to the open doors of the drawing room. He couldn't see Tully, but a fresh wave of laughter from him and the canned audience told him he was still on the couch glued to Del Boy's antics. He moved quickly and silently down to the front door, opened it, stepped outside, and on the next peal of laughter from within, pulled it softly closed behind him. Once he was on the street, he looked left and right and saw in the distance an illuminated London Underground sign. He started in that direction and took out Kendall's phone. He went into the menu and got the telephone number of the phone, which he then said several times under his breath until he had it memorised. Then, from where he had written it on his arm, he thumbed in the number for the London Evening Courier's news desk. After a few rings, a man answered. David asked for Ronnie Bishop. Ah, Ronnie's not a staffer, he's freelance, said the man. What's it about? I'm sure I can help you. No, I need to talk to Ronnie about the London vampire said David. I've got information, something your paper is going to want, but I'll only speak to him. Can you give me his number? Well, let's not be too hasty, said the man, his voice suddenly interested. David pictured him reaching for a pencil and paper. There's no need to go through a third party, sir. You can tell me whatever it is, and if there's a story in it, we can maybe throw a few quid your way. That's a lot more than Ronnie can do. Yeah, no doubt, but this isn't about money. I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of his, and I want him to have the story. So, will you give me his number, or do I have to speak to some other paper he deals with? No, no, no. Hang on. I I can't just give out his private number. I I have an email. No, I need to speak to Ronnie. Call him, tell him what I've told you, and then have him call me back on this number. The journalist agreed, and David gave him Kendall's number. Then he hung up. After no more than three minutes, the phone rang. He looked at the number. Most likely it was for Kendall, possibly even someone from Daventry and West, but hopefully it was Bishop. David thumbed the connect button and answered with a neutral, yeah? There was a pause at the other end of the line. David heard the hum of many voices, the clink of glasses, the unmistakable sound of a pub. Then the caller spoke. This is Ronnie Bishop. Who am I talking to? Mr Bishop, thanks for calling. My name is, well... You can call me David. Okay, David. So, what's this story of yours, and why are you only willing to give it to me? Like I told the guy at the paper, I'm a fan of yours. People like me don't have fans, mate. Come on, stop messing about. What's the story? I'll only tell you in person. Can you meet me? 
Not unless you give me some idea what it's about. They told me you're calling about the vampire, is that right? That's right. Who are you? Police? No, but I'm... I'm working with them. I know what's happening on the inside. Oh, yeah? Said Ronnie. So, how about you throw me a bone then? Just a little tidbit so I know you're not a bullshitter. I'm not going to tell you over the phone, Ronnie. People could be listening in. Listening in? Ronnie laughed. (laughs) On me? You must be confusing me with someone who matters a fuck. Come on, give me a taster or I'm hanging up. Okay, said David. Let's start with the fact that there are two separate killers. A pause. Then Ronnie said, Go on. The body in the skip was cleaned and dumped. The one in the church was done there and then. How do you know this? Like I said, I'm working with the police. I see. All right then, Mr David. Where do you want to meet? Where are you now? It's a pub, right? Yeah, the Kingsway Tavern. Where's that? Kingsway. What's the nearest tube? Holborn. OK, I'll be there in ten minutes. How will I know you? You won't, but I'll know you. What are you wearing? I don't know, black jacket, white shirt? It's a bit vague. I tell you what, bring a copy of this evening's courier with you, stick it under your arm and buy a packet of cheese and onion crisps and a pint of Guinness. I'll ring you when I see you and you can bring them over to me. Yeah, make it two pints, mate, said David. I've had a rough day. Fine, I'll see you later. David ended the call and pocketed the phone. Earlier, as he had left the house, he hadn't noticed the two men standing at a bus stop a short distance away on the opposite side of the road. Once he had started walking, apparently lost within his phone, they had moved together and one of them said, Looks like Tally and Kendall owe us twenty quid apiece, Roy. Yes, indeed, Jim, said the other, and on the first night too. Dear, oh dear, we should a bit more and he's getting out, shouldn't we? He folded the copy of the evening courier he'd been pretending to read and tucked it under his arm. OK, I'll go into the house and see what's happened to them two muppets. You follow Flinch and see what he gets up to. Roger that. Do you want to call her or shall I? No, you do it, said Roy. I've got a feeling I'm going to have my hands full with Tally and Kendall. Let's hope he hasn't fucking killed them. I want my twenty quid. He started across the road. Hey, if he's left them bound and gagged, take a picture before you let them go, will you? Yeah, and Facebook it, said Roy with a grin. That'd be fucking priceless. Yeah, if only, eh? Jim set off in pursuit of David, walking briskly to catch him up and almost flank him on the opposite side of the wide road. He connected to a number on his phone and slipped it back into his pocket. When the call was answered, he spoke into his Bluetooth device. Miss Daventry? It's Glover, ma'am. He's out. I'm pursuing in the direction of Lancaster Gate Underground... No, ma'am. He won't get away from me. He don't even know I'm on him. And so, listeners, David begins his journey underground. Armed with a flick knife and a head full of wrong deductions about Damo and being pursued by a member of the sect. What could possibly go wrong? The music you're listening to is Ahmad Armour by Farid Farjad, courtesy of Taranay Records and our good friend Farwaz Al Maloud. You can stream the music from just about everywhere that streams music, and if you can't find it, 
Just go to my website, Mike Bennett Author, or underwoodandfinch.com, and you will find links there. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back, listeners. So now it's time to share with you the chat that I had with the producer, or should I say, executive producer of the possible Underwood and Flinch television series. As I mentioned earlier, this call was recorded in October of last year, so it's a little out of date. There have been some developments on the show since then, and I'll share those with you after you've heard the chat. So, now then, with no further ado... TV show news! Hello then, here we are, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm with Mark, who is, uh, who is a producer on the Underwood and Flinch television program. Hello, Mark. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing, Mike? I'm very well, thank you. We're just going to call you Mark, you know, which is kind of partial anonymity because we don't want to give too much about your identity away at this time. Uh, But uh, thank you for joining us today. And uh, uh, I was hoping you might be able to tell us, uh, tell me and the listeners a little bit about the Underwood and Flinch television program that may happen at some stage in the future. (laughs) <laughs> well, as far as I'm concerned, it will knock wood happen at some point in the future. Um, I think that future has just gotten a little prolonged since the last time we spoke. Yeah. Um, we're in terrific shape. We've got a terrific cast in place. Um, and we've finalized or are finalizing in the next week the materials that we'll use to go out and sell it to you know streamers and 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 networks alike um and we uh are actually waiting on the marketplace which is one of the frustrating parts of this whole game is that um we feel like it's in a terrific position we feel like it's ripe to sell and there have been all these corporate mergers and layoffs and department combinations at pretty much all of the buyers. Yeah. So figuring out where to go and when to go there is what we're doing right this second. Because there's a sense that there's a bit of a blockage in the market with business that needed to be taken care of anyway and previously. And so it's slowing down new business. And that's been said to us by, you know, buyers, fellow producers, writers, agents, managers alike. Um, And so we're trying to figure out what the best game plan is for Underwood and Flinch. We'd obviously like to get it out sooner rather than later, Mm -hmm. but also want to make sure that we put it forth in a market where we can get multiple bidders and, so in the interim, um, yeah, we've, we've closed all the talent deals, which is a big step. Uh, we're pretty much finished with the pitch, which is the verbal take on what the series would be. 
in addition to a deck, uh, which is a visual presentation that we would use. And we're honestly just trying to feel around probably for the next week, just trying to feel around um, how best to roll it out. Yeah. But as confident as ever about doing so and selling it, just don't want to take it out to places prematurely yeah. if they're not ready to buy it. Sure. And force a pass. Yeah. Uh-huh. We we can't give any details away at this time, but the the stars involved, would you say they were household names? Yes. <laughs> I'd say so too. Yeah. Yes. I, I'd say yes. so too. And that would be the case for people in the UK and America and Australia <laughs> and everywhere. For sure. I'm trying not to like drop any names, but yes, oh. definitely. I mean, Americans are very aware of, of, of the talent that's involved um, because, you know, there are people who have done things that have traversed uh, the Atlantic and become hits here sure. as well. And there's certainly... I, it's not even a cult following. It's 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 wider than that. Like there are people who know and love the talent that's involved, and then there's the other piece of talent that's involved that was very is very has been very visible and is a terrific actor, hmm. and um, he's also he's known for sure here, but he's also known um, in the UK and abroad. Yeah, because, I mean, um, I know who you're talking about. It is hard, isn't it? <laughs> talking about <laughs> they are. But, uh, yeah, one, one of his shows, um, his big show that he was on, uh, has yeah. been on, on a streamer, which has been, a, you know, which is available all over the world. And is, it's quite a high-profile show on there. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all right, so that's exciting. Very exciting indeed. And um, and so if we if we assume then that the show does get sold uh, and it does find a home, uh, what would be the next stage? What happens then? Um, depending on the situation under which we sell it, yeah, um, you know, it could be a script to series deal, meaning like they commission a script um and a proper series guide or series format and then based off of that they green like the series another iteration could be they commission two or three scripts of the first scripts and um want to make a decision based off of that so it kind of depends on the platform and their methodologies of development because some yeah. places like to do things differently and um so uh Again, when we talk about package, I know that you've cast Underwood and you've cast Flinch. You have the writer. Do you have any other uh, characters in the cast kind of penciled in actors for the roles? Not yet, because usually when it's a show that has, you know, Underwood and Flinch, two leads, right? Yeah. You, you focus on those and that's who people are going to identify with the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the companies with whom we're working, particularly the one company, has lots and lots of goodwill and connections and, and has worked with um, a lot of A-list talent um, as have the studios who are involved. So um, I, I believe that we'll sell it with these, with, with Underwood and Flinch. Yeah. And then we'll cast people 
as we get going and we'll be able to attract a lot of people um, based on how beloved the, the particular actors are. You're an executive producer on Underwood and Flinch. Yes. But, but you also work as a producer, don't you? I mean, it's it's so funny. After 20 years, I am still explaining to my parents what the difference <laughs> is and yeah, even exactly. what That's a producer does go. yeah, what or what an executive producer does. So it's kind of like film and TV are kind of opposite. So in film, the people listed as the producers are the ones who, you know, get to go up on stage for the Oscar and they're doing the day-to-day creative work and making sure the show gets launched and, and like a physically hands-on creative producer, right. Who's there with the director and the talent and making sure everything goes. Okay. Executive producers in film are often people who have helped put the film together, controlled the IP, uh, brought money in or financing in or something like that. And IP is intellectual property. Is that right? Yes. I'm sorry. I use it so much. I should spell that out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In TV, it's reversed. In TV, like when you see somebody listed as producer, that's generally a writer, sort of like a mid-level writer on the writing staff. Um, And it's the executive producers who range from the non-writing executive producers like myself um, to the talent producers um and and the writer of the show um and so the those are the people doing the work on a tv show they're just they're labeled executive producers or co-executive producers yeah um so it's pretty much the same job depending on which medium you know yeah okay brilliant all right well uh thank you so much for chatting to us today mark uh and i know that you you know you'll be working with the other people on Underwood and Flinch in the, in the in the days and weeks to come, and I hope it goes really really well, and that, that you that you, obviously I hope it goes really really well, and that you guys get to where you want to be, where we all want you to be. Yes, and we hope to make your listeners happy and um, be able to talk about a sale in, as soon as possible. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure they will be. How can they not be? all right thanks very much mark and uh well hopefully we'll speak to you again on the show yes absolutely my pleasure brilliant thank you so there you are my thanks again to mark for chatting with me and sharing all that news with us fascinating stuff isn't it what goes on and what's involved in a pitch the deck was a completely new concept for me to get my head around. You know, deck. What's a deck? But I've since seen one of the early versions of the Underwood and Flinch deck, uh, and it's basically a visual aid for the pitch, a set of images that illustrate how the stars might look in the show uh, and the various elements and concepts behind it. Kind of like the sort of PowerPoint presentation that some of you might see at work, only interesting. But anyway, so that call took place back in October of 2022. But now, in February 2023, things have evolved a little. Remember how Mark was saying about the plan they had to wait a while before taking the show out to pitch to networks and streamers? Well, that period of waiting is almost over. Executives from the companies involved in the production 
sent out packages to would-be clients back in January, and now firm dates for the pitches are being confirmed. I heard this news just yesterday, and I almost had to pinch myself to make sure I wasn't dreaming. To be clear then, this means that the stars, the showrunner, and executives from the production companies behind Underwood and Flinch, the television series, are going to be pitching it to companies like Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Sky in the UK, and others in the months to come. And some of those appointments are already firmly scheduled to take place. Oh my God, that's just like so totally awesome. I know, it's so weird, isn't it? This podcast, this quiet little podcast, known to many, yet at the same time, almost completely unknown, is going to Hollywood. What will happen? No one knows. But stay tuned to this podcast, and I will, assuredly, keep you informed. Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. As always, it's been a pleasure being in your ears, and I look forward to being in them again next Wednesday when we follow David Flinch deeper into the mysteries of Underwood and Flinch Underground. Until then, take care and farewell.